But I found it just in, incredibly tragic that we would be given or we would have evolved consciousness and then have this this horrible burden of the knowledge that everything around us would be gone one day. And that was really the, the first big idea that I had, which was not that we could live forever, but why isn't anybody talking about it? It's a travesty. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy, and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. For millennia, humans have been obsessed with the idea of longevity. From the legend of Methuselah to the fountain of youth, we seem drawn to myths about eternal life. One strategy is calorie restriction, which researchers have been exploring since the 1930s. Eating a lot less seems to make humans and animals live a lot longer. Many people say they'd rather live a shorter life and eat well than a long and hungry one. Today, a growing group of scientists think they may have found a better solution, drugs that can massively extend life. Among them is Sydney-born David Sinclair, who co-directs the Paul F. Glenn Laboratories at Harvard Medical School, and is also a professor at the University of New South Wales. For someone who works on giving us more time, he acts like he has very little. When I visited the lab earlier this year, David was a dynamo of energy, talking about the new drugs, introducing me to his staff, casually brushing off my compliments about his new order of Australia, and at times making claims so bold that I had to remind myself I wasn't speaking with a crank scientist in the basement, but a Harvard professor who's raised millions of dollars to support his research and published his results in Nature and Science. David, welcome to the Good Life podcast. Thanks, Andrew. It's great to be on. Uh, now, you uh, grew up in Snives in Sydney. Uh, what got you interested in science originally? Well, I can remember clearly as a kid spending a lot of time in the bush, in uh, Karingai, chase forests and also I think I was influenced by my parents who were both biochemists and they would talk about uh, all sorts of disgusting things at the dinner table uh, but you know I've always <laughs> wanted to do something important with my life and I felt that uh, discovering the secrets of the universe and biology would be a great way to contribute to uh, to history if I was uh, lucky enough. And you also had a sort of entrepreneurial zeal as a, as a child, didn't you? Uh, I've heard this story that uh, you and your brother uh, made ergonomic chairs in, uh, in your garage and went, went selling them? Uh, it's, it's true. Uh, I like to think that I'm, I was just thinking about being altruistic, but when I go through old records, uh, written papers, I, I even found something that said how to become a millionaire by age 30 and all these crazy inventions. So clearly it was on my mind from an early age. You, uh, you did a PhD in molecular biology. What got you focusing on ageing? Well, yeah, this is where it really gets serious. And, and you know, in all honesty, it isn't the, the money that drives me. It's more about being able to do things in the world that, that have never been done before. And I became interested in ageing when my grandmother, uh, who helped raise me and was a very uh, lively, vivacious, uh, relatively young woman, 
who emigrated out of Hungary and just loved Australia, she would tell me about life and uh, how to stay young and adults screw up everything. Um, she loved to tell me uh, A.A. Milne poems such as Now We Are Six, The Best Age. Um, but then she mm. also told me something that was horrific, and I still remember it. She said, uh, I said, will you always be around? And she told me, no, I won't be. Uh, people die, and one day I'll be, I'll be dead, and, and everything around you that's living will eventually be dead. And I'm not the first kid to be told this or to realize this. Every, every child goes through this realization. But I found it just in, incredibly tragic that we would be given or we would have evolved consciousness and then have this, this horrible burden of the knowledge that everything around us would be gone one day. And that was really the, the first big idea that I had, which was not that we could live forever, but why isn't anybody talking about it? It's a travesty. So you uh, you you began focusing on uh, on on aging uh, as doing it during your PhD, and then uh, ultimately moved to the United States. Uh, what led to that? Uh, well, the, if you want to be uh, well known or or have a better chance of being a successful scientist, it certainly doesn't hurt to go to uh, the U.S. and Boston is the hub of of science and uh, especially biology. And so I headed off here. It was a lucky coincidence actually that allowed me to do that. I met a scientist from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology or MIT when I was finishing my PhD at the UNSW. And he was talking about starting a new project to solve aging, not in humans, but in yeast cells, the same yeast that we use to make bread and beer. And I thought that was a great idea. Let's try to solve it for a simple microorganism first. And if we are able to do that, then we might have a clue about why we age as well and how, possibly how to reverse it as well. So that was uh, Leonard Garante. And you, you joined his, his lab as a postdoc, is that right? I did. It was, it was a tough decision, actually, because just as I was about to come over, uh, having um, earned a fellowship to come over, uh, my mother contracted lung cancer, had a lung removed, and I f was actually contemplating not coming to America. And my supervisor, my PhD supervisor, Professor Ian Dawes, said, David, your mum may survive, she may not, but you've got your whole life ahead of you, and this is too important. Just go, go overseas. And it turns out she lived another 20 years, which was really a blessing for all of us. Uh, but I headed over here to see what I could accomplish in a short time, two years, and I, then I was going to come home. Uh, and uh, here, here, here we are a couple of decades on. Uh, do, do you, have you found that uh, it's easier to aim high in a country that's not your own, that uh, it's almost like you've, you've, got, you've, you've got the backup of, uh, of moving home? Yeah, I really found that when I arrived here, two main things happened, happened to me. Uh, one is it's fairly common for foreigners, especially Australians with our really nifty accent, to be taken more seriously over here. I found that I would say the same things as I was saying in Australia, but people over here just paid more attention. I think it's our accent mainly, uh, the foreigner. Maybe they know more than us <laughs> Americans. And the second thing that happened was I became super brave. I wasn't worried about failing because the worst that could happen is that I got to go home. 
So let's uh, let's turn to the uh, particular uh, molecules that you've been uh, uh, working on. Um, there's um, uh, resveratrol and years gone by, and NAD plus that you're uh, you're you're looking at now. What are, what do these uh, molecules do in uh, for the the mice experiments, for example? Well, what we've discovered is that there are genes that control the aging process, and these are called sirtuins. Uh, fancy name for just a set of genes that exist in all life to protect organisms and our bodies against the ravages of time. And they become more complacent. These genes get switched off over time. There are some ways to activate them. You can keep exercising and occasionally be hungry. That, like, that tends to turn them on. But over time, they lose their activity. And so the resveratrol and the NAD plus are two complementary ways that we've discovered, at least in mice, are really efficient at turning on these survival pathways, these longevity genes that, that we call sirtuins. And what does it mean in terms of uh, how, f how much you can reverse the aging process in, in mice? I mean, if you have a, a mouse that's the equivalent of being a 60-year-old human, you give them NAD+, uh, how do they perform? Well, it was really surprising how well it worked because when, when I started in this field, first of all, we had no idea if aging could be slowed by a molecule. And then we started to learn that you could actually make mice live 20%, sometimes 30% longer. Um, and that there's hundreds of labs working on this now. It wasn't just mine. But what's been really surprising in the last few years is how surprise, surprisingly easy it is to uh, reverse aging. And so in the experiment, that we just published, uh, we sh were able to give our molecule that boosts NAD+. Uh, we gave it to old mice, and these mice were about a 65, 70-year-old equivalent of a human. And within just a week of drinking a little bit of this NAD-boosting molecule in their water, we completely reversed the aging of the muscle. And so these mice, uh, without treatment, could barely run on a treadmill, and we put the the treated mice on the treadmill, and they just kept running and running. And we've had mice now that could run three times further than before, just after a week of treatment. So you're creating little mice Olympians, basically. We are. We are. Though, in in to be honest, the young mice didn't respond as well. It was the old mice that needed NAD plus that responded mm. the best. The young mice actually they only benefited if we exercised them on top of giving them the, the molecule, which I guess is. is you could claim could help athletes, but uh, you know that's probably an, an area of of, uh, of further discussion about what this means for athletes. Uh, is it possible to use a natural molecule like NAD plus to uh, to be better than you otherwise would be? Now, in in the uh, traditions of, uh, of of scientists such as Barry Marshall, you're uh, you're not only experimenting on this, but you're also uh, administering it to yourself. Um, what 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 specifically do you do you take each day? Well, I take three things. I'm I'm actually quite happy to talk about it, um, mainly because the science now is so strong. It's it's not even crazy to to admit these things anymore. Uh, it may interest your listeners that probably half of all the scientists that I know studying aging are taking one of these three molecules right now. Um, it, we've just all seen the evidence. So the three are resveratrol, which is the molecule out of red wine or grapes, and that I think many pe people will have heard of. Uh, a second molecule that I take each morning is called metformin, which is a 
prescription medicine for diabetics, which seems to protect against not just diabetes, but cancer and even Alzheimer's, frailty, um, seems very safe as well. And then the third one is an NAD-boosting molecule, which is a, essentially a, a derivative of vitamin B3 that the body uses to, to make NAD+. And the combination of those three has been quite a, a dramatic difference, not just to, to how I feel day to day, but how my blood biochemistry markers have changed over time. Tell us more about uh, how, how, you, how it makes you feel. Uh, so I, I'm about to turn 50 um, next year, and I, I don't have a, a twinge of, of any aspect of aging. I know I'm not that old, but uh, I, I don't feel a day different. I don't have a gray hair. Um, most people say I haven't changed in 30 years. You can be the judge if you Google me, but uh, I, I certainly don't feel any effects of aging. Um, but it's actually the, the older people who have tried this regimen that uh, are the ones that notice a difference difference between them and their peers. And there's, uh, there's others around you who are do doing the same, our mutual friend Tristan Edwards, uh, your wife, your, your brother. Um, I, I'm interested too in, in what it did for your, uh, for your mother who, uh, who lived 20 years after that lung cancer diagnosis and, and for your father who's still around. Right. Well, you know, I'm, I'm here in the, in the walls of Harvard, so I have to, and I want to just put a dis disclaimer here that these are not real experiments. They're not clinical trials, and I won't be publishing this, but perhaps this is an indication of what, what is to come in the future for everybody. Uh, so with my mother, she was on resveratrol for 20 years. She survived without a lung for 20 years. The cancer never came back which I think is in large part due to how great a surgeon she had. But also I like to think that we might have helped her along. She ended up being the longest surviving uh, patient with that type of lung cancer in Australian history as far as I know. So that was um, a very, very good uh, outcome for her. The, she wasn't able to live long enough to be able to try these other molecules. That's where my father comes in. Now I, I've been asked before, do you tell your parents to take these molecules? And absolutely not. I, I don't tell anybody to take these. I'm not going to experiment on, on my family. But they end up demanding it. My brother got very upset that he was aging apparently faster than I was. And he said, what are you using? <laughs> the, the, the negative control in the family. So he's now <laughs> trying it, right? He's, uh, and he, he's doing okay. But l let me tell you about my father because I'm extremely proud of him. My father was just an average guy. He, he worked at the same company for 36 years retired at 67 and said, I've had a good life. I got maybe 10 good years of retirement and that's it. Okay, 10 years later, actually more than 10 years later, it's, he's almost 80. He hasn't changed a bit. He, hasn't, he doesn't feel any different. In fact, he's feeling better than he did when he retired. N no aches, no pains, can exercise and run like he did when he was 20. Um, and he's got a, a new lease on life. In case in point, he started a new career He's now working voluntarily as a, an evaluator on the ethics panel for clinical trials at Sydney University, really enjoying his new second life, traveling the world. He, he goes uh, caving. He's doing abseiling. He travels the world every year uh, with a, his, his good friend, does a lot of exercise, doesn't feel tired at all, and recently climbed to the 
uh, top of uh, Tasmania, Cradle Mountain, with my brother who could barely keep up because he wasn't on the molecules at the time, and also with my <laughs> ex-girlfriend who uh, also found it hard to keep up with him. And so the, does, does taking these pills mean you don't have to do the other things that we would often think we need to do in order to live a long life, such as not eating too much and uh, mm. uh, exercising and so on? Well, we don't know for sure whether these molecules truly work in humans. These are just stories that we hear, and there's a lot of overlap between people's stories, which is encouraging. But we're doing the clinical trials to see if, if it's true. But what, what the science says very clearly is that in all the life forms that we've tested these molecules on, from yeast to worms to flies to mice, these molecules mimic dieting and exercise and gives you the benefits of those things uh, without necessarily having to do them. Which doesn't mean that you have, to, you, you have an excuse to just pop a pill and just sit around as a couch potato. Because as I mentioned, you get the benefits if you exercise and are healthy on top of these regimens. But what it also means is there's hope for people who are already wheelchair-bound or in a nursing home or have just had a heart attack. Those are people, of course, you cannot expect them to get on a treadmill or go on a diet. Uh, and do you do uh, quite a bit of exercise yourself? Do you, uh, do you practice calorie restriction? I, I don't exercise enough. I really try, but it seems like my, like my career is mostly based on keyboard presses. Uh, and it's very hard. I've got three kids too, which I spend you know as much time with them as possible, three younger kids. But I do tr try my best um, to not overeat. And if I can, I try to skip a meal or two a day. Now, I'm not always successful at that, uh, but I do find with my busy career, I, that's, that's at least partially feasible. And what that means is at least part of the day, I have a grumbling stomach. Um, and I, I truly believe that that is going to uh, make me live uh, longer, um, and even if it doesn't, it will, I think, make my life feel a little bit longer anyway. Uh, well, certainly life uh, often feels longer when you're hungry, but uh, that, that's, uh, I, don't think, I don't think that's exactly what you had in mind there, right? No, uh, there's so much convincing evidence that being a little bit hungry, and, and certainly staying lean if you can, uh, is a good thing. Um, there's a good reason why um, being obese is bad for you, and what we're finding is it's because it shuts off your body's longevity genes. I think that's the main reason that we end up being uh, shorter-lived if, if we don't watch our weight. Um, and so it's really just tr what you're trying to do is trick your body into being um, in, a, in a defensive mode. Okay, so if we go back to early life on the planet, these genes were, were there to make life survive adversity. And by exercising and being a little bit hungry, those same genes are kicking into action, those survival genes that will protect us, we think, from diseases of old age and eventually extend our lifespan by possibly five or more years. So the current record for uh, the longest life is a French woman who lived to 122 and a Japanese man who lived to 116. Uh, where do you think we can go? Where can the research of you and others take us? Well, most people who try to extrapolate uh, in human history look backwards uh, at history and don't take into account major advances in science. So in 1902, I think most people would have said humans are never going to fly around the world, but as soon as the Wright brothers took off in 1903, everything was off the table. You know, anything was possible, I should say. Uh, what we're doing here is the same kind of thing. We are building the Wright brothers' plane. 
we've taken off uh, and we can now see what's, what's possible. So I, I, I'm changing my view. I, I used to say that, uh, that it would be great if we could live another five or 10 years, but I'm seeing results around the world and companies being started every few months to tackle different aspects of aging. And I just came from a meeting in my lab where we've actually shown that we can rejuvenate cells from being old to being young again, reprogram them to be young again and give them back their youthful identity. So I'm, I'm gonna go on record saying that the first person to live to 150 is already around us, um, has already been born. But I'm also excited by the fact that there is no law that says we cannot live much longer than that. Now I don't think we'll live forever, that's, that's pretty hard. But I haven't seen any reason why we couldn't live for hundreds of years given these new results that we're just seeing from our lab and a few others around the world. What do you, do you worry about a society in which uh, the old don't pass away to uh, to, to to allow the, the young to flourish? Uh, you famously uh, in two thousand and four debated uh, Leon Cass uh, at the University of Chicago about the ethics of uh, living, uh, living longer. Uh, he made these arguments that people might feel less urgency. Uh, it might undermine the institution of marriage, that the old fogies would dominate and you wouldn't get the fresh new uh, start-up start ideas. Uh, do you think a society in which uh, the old didn't, uh, didn't shuffle off their mortal coil might be a worse one in some respects? Uh, I think that's a load of rubbish, and I told him so. Uh, it would be like in the 1920s saying, what are we going to do with all these people that survive infections? As we advance as a society, it's going to be normal for an 80 or 90-year-old to be playing tennis with their grandkids and beyond. Um, Dr. Cass was on record as saying, uh, who would marry uh, their partner if you would live to over 100? Um, I, to that I say, I would love to spend an extra decade with my wife, you know, each to his own. I also don't think that the, the agency of life uh, diminishes because you live an extra 10 years. Absolutely not. Even a thousand years, for me anyway, uh, wouldn't, be, wouldn't be a long time. I, I've lived now 50 years and that went by in a blink. So a thousand is just 20 blinks. So what? I still want to do so much with life. And if you have longer life and you're healthy, it gives you the chance to reinvent yourself. So if you make a mistake or you have kids and you're held back in what you always wanted to do, you would have a chance to start again, just like my father has at the age of, uh, you know, 70 plus. Do you feel that the field is uh, is starting to get pretty crowded? I mean, you've got uh, Google's Calico, you've got people like James Watson, Craig Venter, Aubrey de Grey, Cynthia Kenyon. Uh, you've got backing of people like Peter Thiel and Larry Ellison. You've got all these different approaches, rapamycin, basis, this idea that we can infuse young blood into uh, into older people. Um, do you uh, do, do you feel as though there's uh, there's a lot of people uh, uh, around you and and perhaps your your idea isn't going to be the one that dominates? Oh, I think it's wonderful that the world is waking up to this possibility. Uh, it's what I always dreamed of, and the more the better. That only a fraction of one percent is dedicated to studying aging at the fundamental level, um, and it, it it's the most common disease that we all suffer from. It's going to kill most of us. So finally, I found that it's very exciting that that the globe is waking up to this because everyone, pretty much, uh, not everyone, but most people I met, have been in denial their whole lives, 
And not only is it possible to dream about what's, what's possible in the future, finally we're actually doing something about it. And what I find exciting is that the young generation, especially Gen Z, are so optimistic about what we humans can achieve and make a better world. It's as though anything is possible, and I just love that about them. I love that somebody who's focused on aging is uh, drawing their greatest inspiration from uh, from the next generation. Uh, that's, uh, that's that's either beautiful or, or ironic. I can't quite figure it out. Uh, do Do you worry that in taking on such a big question that you might you might fail? Is there do you have a fear a fear of failure? I mean, you've you've had sort of certainly critics of your uh, of your of your work in the past. Does does the fear of failure trouble you? Uh, I don't worry about failure. I've already achieved more in my lifetime than I thought I would. Uh, and so the rest is is just a bonus. But I'm, I'm at the point of my career where you know, I've, I've put enough cell science and nature papers on the wall. Now it's all about training the next generation of scientists. Um, and I do this all the time now, and I'm looking forward. If, if my son chooses to get into this, that's great. You know, that'll be my legacy, and they'll carry the torch. So if I fail, um, and, you know, I, I think it's, there's a small chance of failure now that there's so much going on. But even if I do, I'll still die a happy man because I know that uh, I've been able to help inspire young people and show what's possible. And it's now, it's a whole movement. It's a global movement. And if I was to get hit by a bus tomorrow, that would be fine because I think what's started here, it's got enough momentum that it just is not going to stop whether I'm around or not. What does a typical day look like for you? Are you a ferociously early early riser? Do you have a lot of structure to your day? Uh, well, I have uh, um, people who manage my time, so it's it's very busy. So I'm going from meeting to call to meeting to to, to taxi, flight to meeting to back again. So it's it's a very full life, um, but I, I love that about it. Uh, I don't want to waste a second. Uh, every moment is important to me, and I feel like I'm on a mission to really change the world. And I'm in this um, this position that I, you know, for for partly due to to my stubbornness, but also just dumb luck, landing at the right place at the right time. I I want to maximize um, my opportunity here to make the biggest difference. So it's busy. An average day for me, there isn't really isn't one, but it, it's uh, it involves going to the lab and checking out the new results, talking to a few students, getting on the phone call to, uh, to reporters, finishing up writing my, my next book, uh, getting on a flight perhaps to New York for dinner, uh, coming back, uh, talking to investors to raise money for the company that I'm building right now. It's extremely exciting and, and actually I'm helping guide about 500 scientists around the world uh, in what they're doing and that's a lot of activity and a lot of emails each day. How do you do? You have any trip, tips or tricks for managing email? It seems to uh, dominate many of our lives. Uh, well, so it, it's it's really hard, especially when they fall off the bottom of the the screen or the the phone, and you have to go back. Uh, I I find that now I've just had have to do it every time I'm walking, every every spare moment. If I'm on a plane, if I'm you know in a car, uh, being driven, that is, uh, I'm always on on point and on my work. Unfortunately, it never stops. And I typically end, end my email day. Last night I was up till 2 a.m. Uh, working. So it's a, it's a busy life. 
I don't think there's a, what we need is a bot that can help answer emails, but I haven't found that there's any way to outsource that really. Um, if, I, if there's one gem that I could give to your listeners, it would be uh, try not to dwell on emails too long. It, often you can spend too long composing emails, getting them perfect. Don't get them perfect. Try to get, get it off your plate, send it out, um, and move on to the next one. David, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Oh, gosh. Um, I'm quite proud of my teenage self that, that he didn't screw up his life and ended up making something of himself. Um, I would actually tell my teenage self, don't be shy. Don't worry. You will find a partner. You're not going to be lonely forever. Um, and just follow your passion. Uh, keep, keep following your dreams. I was a fairly... Uh, I wouldn't say clinically depressed, but I wasn't a happy teenager. I was too too worried about the world. I was worried about where we were going. I was worried about the environment, just overwhelmed with negativity. Uh, but when I finally found that I might be able to have a positive impact on the planet, everything changed and I came out of my shell and I'm not shy anymore. And I find that I actually have some leadership skills that I didn't realize I had when I was younger. You've been quoted uh, as, uh, as, as saying that you, uh, you're inspired by your grandmother Vera's saying, don't be boring. Uh, do you feel as though you've, uh, you've lived up to the don't be boring maxim? Um, I, I think so. There are a lot of things that I, I could say that I'm not allowed to because I'm a scientist and a professor, but I think that being able to maximize your life, um, don't always give the, the straight answer, uh, make a joke uh, as often as you can, I think that that's a, a life well lived. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? I used to believe that we were a species that wasn't worth saving. And I've come to believe that humans are the most interesting thing in the universe. They're extremely rare. They're super interesting. They are uh, each one comprised of 20 trillion cells that works to make a conscious being that can make a difference. And actually, we control our destiny. And that any major problem, if we choose to, politically and socially, we can solve that problem. So I'm, I've become a pessimist. Uh, from I've moved from being a pessimist to realizing that humans are are the most exciting, not just exciting, the most promising thing to ever evolve on any uh, rock in the universe that we know of. Was that a sort of radical environmentalist view that, uh, that, that, that shaped that notion that humans weren't worth saving? You talked about spending the time in the bush and so on. Were you worried about the damage that humans were doing to the natural environment? Yeah, absolutely I was. And uh, I, I loved animals. I still love animals. And I was worried that we would just overcrowd them. But what I've actually seen that as soon as you have a problem like uh, running out of, uh, of petrol or gas supplies or pollution or overcrowding, we can solve those problems. I, I drive an electric car. Uh, I've seen uh, housing that's great to live in that, that doesn't take up an acre. And I've seen that we can make food that isn't environmentally destructive on, on very little amounts of water and fertilizer. And so these are things that give me huge optimism that if we just put our minds to, minds to it and we have the political will, uh, we can make our future more like a Star Trek than a Blade Runner. And I understand you've even provided advice to the Chinese government on managing the challenges of population growth. Um, I do advise governments, and uh, I also advise um, uh, various aspects of government, let's just say, that to protect 
us from bioweapon threats and that and the like. But yeah, what I'm finding is that governments are uh, slowly waking up to the fact that this science is real. It's going to have a big impact. It's going to have social consequences, no doubt. We will have to adapt the laws and age of retirement. It'll have a big impact on uh, our, the government's ability to pay out retirement for 40 years of somebody's lifespan or, or longer. But these are things that we will adapt to because we're not all going to stop aging tomorrow. But I think the policies do need to to be adapted. But we've done the math. We've seen that if we're able to allow people to have an extra five to 10 years of healthy life, the, the longevity dividend that, that comes back is in the trillions of dollars of saving just into the Australian economy. And that money can be put back into saving the environment, into education, and to paying for people to be able to be re-educated and, and have a second or third life um, and career. And that's a world that, when that happens, we'll look back like we do at the 1920s and say, how is it possible that people used to die from a cut? Who would want to live like that? And we're going to have the mm. same situation when this all comes true. When are you most happy? Oh, when I'm talking about the research and the discoveries of my students. Um, and when I talk to people who share the enthusiasm and the, the, realize the promise of, of what humanity is about to embark on. Do your uh, your three children have a sense now as to as to what you work on? Do you do, are they at a stage yeah. where you're able to engage them with the, the wonders of what you're exploring? Yeah, well, you know, I'm like any parent. When when I'm with my kids, it's it's the best times. Uh, but I've I've three kids, and they're all very different, as you might imagine. And a young boy who's similar to me, he's a scientist, big optimist, wants to wants to change the world and take over from me if he can. I've got a middle daughter who doesn't really care about anything except uh, being a socialite and uh, and performing and writing music, which is great. I totally respect that. But my our eldest daughter uh, has the, the negativity of a teenager that we're just trying to, uh, we're going we're gonna to screw up the world. She's not, she hasn't made that transition like I did at her age. She's a 15-year-old. And, and the discussions that I have with each of my children are, are just wonderful, um, and they're all very different. Um, but we we do like to argue. We have dinner dinner table conversations that can be quite heated, um, but uh, extremely enjoyable. And that's one of the things that I I love about um, at my family is that they they won't just sit there and and talk about you know TV shows. They'll actually will debate about the future of humanity and who's right and who's wrong. What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Is it those three pills? Um, well, I do gardening. That's my relaxation. Uh, my wife and I are avid gardeners. That's quiet time. But mostly I'm, I'm just happy when... Me. Uh, I Really? Because uh, I don't have yeah, time. Yeah, so it doesn't it doesn't seem to fit with with everything else you said. I, I sort of can't picture the uh, your frenetic energy being uh, be, be, being imposed on uh, on petunias and carrots. Well, I do like weeding. I do have a little bit of OCD, so pl plucking stuff is good for my health. Uh, <laughs> but I also, I, I, I'm not a fairly. Uh, my wife and I, we are both overachievers. She's a PhD from MIT as well. Anyway, so she and I. Um, you know, if you if you could see our garden, I think it's it's a little over the top. Uh, we we do like to uh, grow a lot of things and plant a lot of things. We just finished building a uh, an orchard, 
which uh, is drip-fed and drip-watered. And I'm, I'm hoping to uh, win an award, or at least a competition with some of my colleagues who are trying to grow fruit, and we want to have the award for the most fruit per square meter. So that's the kind of thing. You know, I'm still, <laughs> I think, now you understand why I like gardening. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a fun hobby, but I still introduce competition to it. Right, right. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Guilty pleasure would be a glass of or two of red wine. Um, that's about it. I do, I do imbibe occasionally, but that's about it. I've been very good to my body over the years, um, but that's about it. Try to try to not eat too much. I tried to give up um, what do you call it desserts at age forty uh, as best I could. If if I tr if I do eat and snack at night, that that's probably something that I should do less of. But I do uh, what do you call it stress eat uh, to try and uh, to get through a day. But uh, tr really trying to fight that one. But uh, you know you can find me at, in the fridge at midnight um, on a, on uh, every other day. <laughs> we should go to uh, to to one of the uh, the myths about uh, red wine because it does contain. Resveratrol, but uh, can you just remind our listeners how many glasses of red wine they would have to drink to get as much resveratrol as is in your daily pill? Sure. So a glass of red wine has a few milligrams of resveratrol in it. So the amount that I take is a gram. So you'd need to take uh, more than 100 glasses of red wine. I don't recommend that uh, to anybody. I think uh, your liver will die before you get enough. <laughs> uh, but uh, so that's why I, I put the powder in a, in a yogurt in the morning. It's it's not a very soluble molecule. It's very good to have in red wine, actually, because it's dissolved in, in the alcohol. But uh, mm. one thing about red wine that I'm often asked is, well, can it actually do any good if you need 100 glasses a day? And the, the answer is that red wine is full of different molecules. Some are resveratrol. Some of these other ones are, are beneficial. And so I think the combination of these what we call polyphenolic molecules in red wine with a little bit of alcohol each day can explain why it's been found that red wine can seemingly protect you against heart disease and other diseases and, and protect you against uh, a fatty diet such as you find with the, the French, um, as we know in the French paradox. And finally, David, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Huh. Well, I, I look up to Bill Gates. Um, I've never met the guy, but, you know, someone who's, you know, he used to be my mortal enemy. Um, I'm, I'm a big Mac fan. I have a, a museum of Macintoshes at my home to give an idea how much I adore Macs and Apple. But Bill Gates is a guy that has made money and then said, you know what, I'm going to give pretty much all of it away for good causes. And that's just, uh, he'll go down in history more for his, his philanthropy than, than Microsoft in 500 years from now. Well, David Sinclair, uh, longevity researcher extraordinaire, thank you so much for uh, sharing your wisdom and ideas and time on the Good Life podcast today. Thanks, Andrew. It was great to be on. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.